describing the satisfaction and fulfillment you'll experience in doing what God wants, there's Pastor Ed Ray. When you do what God wants you to do, you'll find satisfaction, completeness in things you never thought possible that would even possibly give you the fulfillment they do. But because God knows what you were designed for, when you surrender to him, he fills you with not just the desire, the want to, to do the right thing, but the power for it to happen. And you find yourself radically changed and you go, goodness gracious, I'm a walking miracle. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son, selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I said, let this world know me by your love. Too often, what is seen and heard about the church in the Christian life can give the wrong impression. So what is the church and the Christian to be about? We'll get some answers from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and that's the scripture before us on today's Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. Well, hello, we're so glad you've joined us today as we continue in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. It's here we're given insight on what should be called a model church and believer, and it may surprise you. So let's jump right in from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here's Pastor Ed. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Paul writes, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. As you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Acacia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the judgment to come. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that your desire is to make us like you. Speak to us that we might grow in that this morning. Here we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Contagious believers, infectious believers, we've all met them, and that's what God is looking for in our lives. Paul writes about that here, about being a model, being an example. I was reading this week an article by Arthur Ashe, Gone to be with the Lord, amazing tennis pro, probably an amazing dad too, judging by this article. He talks about leading by example. He said, my wife and I talk about this with our six-year-old daughter. Children are much more impressed by what they see you do than by what you say. Children at that age certainly keep you honest. If you have to be preaching on one thing all along and all of a sudden you don't do it, they're going to pick it up, bring it right up in your face. I tell her it's not polite to eat at the table with your elbows on the table. 
Then after dinner, I put my elbows up, and she says, Daddy, your elbows are on the table. And you have to be man enough or woman enough to say you're right and take your elbows down. In fact, that's an even stronger learning experience than her hearing it. It means that she did listen in the past, she understands it, and she recognizes it when she sees it. But it takes action rather than mere words to accomplish that. Well, we know that, right? We all understand actions speak louder than words. Pastor Chuck Swindoll told a great story in one of his books about a, a grandfather in his church who had a grandson he was really proud of, three years old. Grandpa was really into golf, and he was an avid golfer who practiced in his backyard. And every time the three-year-old grandson went over, there was Grandpa out there putting away and chipping. And, and his uh, grandson went and got a stick, and he started doing it too. His grandfather went, oh, that's amazing. He needs clubs, because that's what grandfathers do. They spoil their grandchildren. And so he bought him his own set of clubs and took him out to the course, and he played, and uh, the kid, you know, just kind of batted the ball around. Came back the next weekend. Grandpa wanted to show him off, so he had a big barbecue at his house. And uh, he said to his grandson, go ahead, play some golf for the people. So he grabs his club, and he gets out there, and he said, I'm playing golf. And he swings, and he misses, and he throws his club up into the pear tree and says a no-no word. <laughs> the kid learned more <laughs> than just golf from his grandpa. He observed his grandpa, and his grandpa blew it, obviously, in his grandson's presence just once. That's all it takes. So, Paul is praising the believers at Thessalonica, is the name of the city in northern Greece, because they have become examples, he says. They're exemplary Christians. They had been worshipers of idol, and now they were worshipers or imitators of God. They were persecuted for it, but it didn't matter to them. They continued to serve him. Now, everyone who heard them, because they were the real thing, were drawn to them. They were infectious. They were contagious believers. And God is still looking for believers who will surrender their lives and become infectious, contagious believers. So, when we surrender our own desires for His, then He puts His Holy Spirit within us and He changes us. Notice I did not say you've got to just try harder, grunt, and strain. This is a marriage of the sovereignty of God and of free will. When we surrender our lives to Him, He puts the Holy Spirit within us and then He causes us to walk in His ways. That's what He said would happen in the new covenant. But we have to allow Him to do that. We have to allow him to have control of our lives and surrender to him. That's what Paul is talking about here. This group of people have become modern examples in that day, first century, and they were in an awkward place. Now, there's Thessalonica, or Thessaloniki as it's called today, up in northern Greece, but they were constantly looking at Mount Olympus. Olympus means mountain of the gods. The Greek culture was filled with gods. And these Thessalonians, they changed from being worshipers of idols, all these gods, to worshiping the true God, an imitator of God. And they became what Paul calls an exemplary, a model church. Now, if I asked you, what's your idea of a model church? I wonder what you would say. I've been reading a lot about this over the, the last, actually, year and a half or two because there's many books that are coming out, particularly by pastors who have been in the corporate world and are bringing a business model to churches. 
And I just finished one uh, yesterday called Simple Church. And frankly, the author is talking about a business model. I know it from being in hospital administration before. But every one of these books that I've read reduces what a model church should be down to three things, down to their programs, their budgets, and their buildings. I don't find that in the New Testament. I don't see Paul even mentioning any of those three things when he describes this model church in Thessalonia. He talks about three completely different things, three characteristics or observable changes that came into the lives of these people. Now, remember, when I say church, the Bible means the ecclesia, the called out one. It's the people. It's not the building. It's not the denomination or the non-denomination. It's people. These people had three radical changes in their lives. They spoke up. They gave their testimony. They witnessed. However you want to say it, they told people about what God had done in their life in 5 through 8. And then in 9, they turned from idols, and they stayed turned. There are lots of idols still around today. And then in verse 10, they're waiting for Jesus' return, which is an interesting thing that Paul emphasizes about this church that you don't hear emphasized much in church today. So this is Paul's understanding of what a model church should be. Let's look into it and see what God might say to each one of us. Verse 5, Paul says, For our gospel, the good news, Jesus died on our behalf, did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sakes. So the good news, Paul said, didn't come to you just as an intellectual concept. This, he did not ask them to intellectually grasp onto this and be changed. He said there was content there, but there was the power of the Holy Spirit. And he uses a forceful word in the Greek language, dudamas. It's where Alfred Nobel got his word for the invention he had of trinitrotoluene, TNT, dynamite. So it's explosive power. Paul is saying that they received not just interesting religious facts, they received a supernatural invasion of the Spirit of God. I said it that way on purpose because it sounds pretty strange the first time you hear that. But that's what God says. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. Paul wrote to the Romans, and we looked at it carefully, that the spirit of God now takes up residence in anyone who would surrender their lives to them. And there's power in that, in him, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul said there was this power of the spirit, this assurance, but when you go over to Acts 17 and read about Paul coming to the city of Thessalonia, it doesn't mention miracles besides the biggest miracle. The biggest miracle is a life that is changed from worshiping an idol, being addicted to a drug or a thing, and then receiving God's power to break that bondage, to unshackle a person to break the chains set the prisoner free that's the power of the holy spirit in people's lives to this day 
This is Growing Grace with Pastor Ed Ray, and we're gleaning insights from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 on the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Now, as we continue with today's Growing Grace, we're focusing on the contagious believer. Pastor Ed illustrates this transforming power of the Spirit that's still available today. Last week, young man walked up to me. I hadn't seen him in a long time and gave me a big hug, a bear hug, and he reminded me of how we met. 17 years ago, a heroin addict on my front porch. One of you sent him to me at 2 o'clock in the morning. God bless you for that. No, I mean that. God bless you for that. Because he beat on my front door, and I thought, what, what, are the police here? What is that? You know, I go out, and here he is, standing on my front porch, stoned out of his mind, I need Jesus. Somebody had already done all the work, you know, I prayed for him, and God released him 17 years without heroin in his life. Yeah. That's the miracle of the Holy Spirit bringing power upon a person's life and releasing them. And you know it, that's the assurance, he said. What kind of men we were for your sake? That's an interesting statement. Men ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul would write to the Corinthians about it. We looked at this earlier. He said, and my preaching was not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but within the demonstration of the Spirit and power that when he spoke God's words, the Holy Spirit took him and impacted the hearer. That's what God wants to do in your life too. Do you have that power? Are you aware of it? When you share with people about what God means to you, do you sense that God is using those words? Not because you're this really perfect person or because you're really holy or because you look the right way, or because you use the right words. No, no, no. This is something that God gives to believers. Now, don't misunderstand me. God gives the Holy Spirit to every believer. When you surrender your heart to God, I already said the Holy Spirit comes in you, takes out your heart of stone, puts in your heart of flesh, writes his law of love on your heart, puts his spirit within you, and causes you to walk in his ways. That's what the new covenant is. Yes, amen. Thank you, Lord, for that. So what happens? Why is it that so many Christians come to me and say, I don't feel like anything's working. I'm so discouraged. Life is frustrating, I understand that. But I've been witnessing this person for years and nothing's happening. I just don't feel like that I have any power in my life. What happened was, in most of those cases, the Holy Spirit invaded their heart the first time, And then they began to tell people, and they gave out the Holy Spirit, and they never asked for more of the Holy Spirit. Really? Asked for more? Got a scripture for that, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. Yes, there is one from Jesus himself. It's in Luke chapter 11. Now, I have to set it up for you because I I want you to, to hear it with different ears on. It's usually taught, this parable, correctly about prayer that God wants to answer prayer. But there's a very specific kind of prayer that it's talking about. You know the parable, Luke 11, 5. Jesus said to them, which of you has a friend? And go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. 
for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to feed him. And he will answer from within and say, don't trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed. I cannot rise and give it to you. Listen, we've been asleep for an hour now. I got kids. I got dogs, cats, lambs. I can't get up without waking everybody. I can't come and give you some bread. I say to you, Jesus speaking, though he will not rise and give it to him because he's his friend, yet he will because of his persistence, and he will rise and give him as many loaves as he needs. So the picture here is not one of comparison. He's not saying Father God is like this man. He's saying, no, no, here's the contrast. If a human being would get up at persistence and answer your prayer, how much more your heavenly father? Your heavenly father is waiting for you to ask. What? God is waiting for you and me to come to him and ask. That's what Jesus said in the next two verses. And now I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and him who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. Now he's talking about prayer, that your Father in heaven wants to give you something when you pray. All you have to do is ask. What's he talking about? He's talking about this. Verse 11. And if a son asks you for bread from any of his fathers among you, will he give him a stone? If he asks him for a fish, will it give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? Two of you A's on your test. How much more of the Holy Spirit will he give to them that ask? I was blind to that. I read that for probably 10 years until I finally got to it one day and went, oh my goodness, he's talking about asking for the power, what we're talking about, of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Well, why did he use the whole thing about the fish and the scorpion and the stone? Because people today still tell me, well, I'm afraid to ask God for the Holy Spirit because he'll like give me tongues and I'll have to scream out in the middle of a restaurant or something, tongues I can't control myself, fall down, foaming at the mouth. No, 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 no. Right after I got saved, Raylan and I went to a church. It's not far from here, so I have to be careful. I'm not going to divulge. But we were there for a concert. It was a very enthusiastic church, okay? And, and they're very sincere. But the place I noticed was a little rocking. Everybody was rocking at first in worship. And then finally, the pastor called for a Jericho march. Some of you know what that is. <laughs> Most of you don't. A Jericho march is where you start out, and in this church, it would go down around in front of the aisle, and then all the way up to the back, and then around, all the way around, and then back again. And you wouldn't do it once, you'd keep doing it. And, and it went from just a little jog to some serious running. I mean, they, had, they didn't believe you'd really worship until you were sweating, okay? <laughs> That's not the Holy Spirit forcing you to, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He comes into your life and he gives you power to share the truth of who he is with other people. And he wants to restore, rebuild, reinvigorate your life with him. 
So do you have that power? Do you feel like you're lacking it? Ask him right now. God, come back into my life. Fill me up to overflowing. I promise he won't make you do a Jericho march. We've never done one here. He wants to give you power, and he will if you ask how much more are given to them that ask. Verse 6, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word, God's word, in much, whoops, affliction, with joy. How do you put those two together in the same sentence? We have affliction and we have joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, the people there in Thessalonica, as soon as they embraced Paul, then they were being opposed. Paul was only there for three weeks, it would appear when you read Acts chapter 17. But Paul came, and he, he probably didn't look real good. He'd been in Philippi, if you know the story in Acts 16. He'd been beaten. He and Silas were beaten, thrown in prison. So he probably came with a big lump on his head here. You know, his eyes still a little black underneath that. And he comes, and he shares with them the gospel. And the gospel... The true gospel is that you will be opposed, that there will be persecution. And some of you in this room know this. You're, I know you, and your parents have disowned you. And some of you are struggling with your children because you, too many times you've shared Jesus with them. They don't want to hear it anymore. And that's a form of persecution. So Paul is telling them, warning them, that there's going to be an adversary who will come against them. Now, that's not the way the gospel is often presented, particularly in these United States. If I was standing up here with a, you know, five-carat pinky ring and a $5,000 Armani, that is funny, isn't it? $5,000 Armani suit, you know, silk tie, and, uh, and had a Rolls-Royce concourse in the number one parking place with the gold lame you know, all around the parking space. And I said, come to Jesus and you'll get this. A lot of people would come, but for the wrong reason. What's the motive? Just selfishness. The gospel is exactly the opposite. You lay down your life. You lay down your selfishness. You say, God, I'll take whatever it is you want for my life. And here's the paradox of that. When you do what God wants you to do, you'll find satisfaction, completeness in things you never thought possible that would even possibly give you the fulfillment they do. But because God knows what you were designed for, when you surrender to him, he fills you with not just the desire, the want to, to do the right thing, but the power for it to happen. And you find yourself radically changed and you go, goodness gracious, I'm a walking miracle because you know who you are. For most of you in this room, if I say the biggest miracle here is me and I know it, you'd understand because you're thinking, no, 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 pastor, the biggest miracle in here is me because I was so far from the gospel, you couldn't get there with a rocket ship. But you could with Jesus and he'll get you there. Pastor Ed Ray on the paradox of the gospel. If you've yet to do so, be encouraged to let go of your life. Give it to the Lord, and you'll find life. To hear this program again, go online to thepackinghouse.org. We archive our programs there for you so you can listen anytime you'd like. Or you can call and ask for a CD copy at 844-77-GRACE. 
And that's 844-77-GRACE. We want to say a special word of thanks to those of you who support Grow in Grace. And those that do this month, we'll send you a special resource. What is the key that unlocks God's blessings? In a word, grace. That's the emphasis in Chuck Smith's book, Why Grace Changes Everything. In it, he explores the mystery of grace and reveals why we can never grow in grace by our own efforts. It comes from the Lord. We'd like to send you a copy of Why Grace Changes Everything for your gift of any amount. Please remember, it's through your support that we're able to present this radio program on this station and others like it. You can reach us at 844-77-GRACE. Again, that's 844-77-GRACE. Our prayer is that you'll grow in grace as you study along with us. And if that's happening in your life, please do write to us, as that would be very uplifting to hear. And if you have a question related to our study or a prayer request, by all means, send those our way. Our email address is packinghouseradio at aol.com. That's packinghouseradio at aol.com. And then join us for the next Grow in Grace weekend edition as our study of 1 Thessalonians develops with Pastor Ed Ray. God bless. This program is sponsored by the Packinghouse Christian Fellowship in Redlands. Zion, now filled with hands and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son. Selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love and harmony. I said let this world know me by your 